Hi, I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English Lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow Lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Welcome, everybody, to Lit and Libations. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Audra. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about our newest pick, uh, your pick. Uh, Do you want to remind everybody what we're going to be discussing? Yes. So today we are going to be talking about basically the first half of How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in Ten Sea Creatures by Sabrina Imbler. Um, I'm excited about this one. I've, I'm really enjoying it. So we are going to be discussing up through um, pages 112 up to the story Beware the Sand Striker. So everything before that story is fair game. Yes, uh, I'm excited about this. This is really fun to read and I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I love short stories and I love, well, it's not, they're not fiction, but I love the essays and these yeah. stories and I love the like subject matter, um, both from their personal recounting of like their own life, as well as like the different species that they talk about. So, uh, really excited. Um, but before we get into it, go ahead and let everybody know what our next book will be that we will be discussing. So we are going to read Octavia E. Butler's novel fledgling. And this was her last novel that she published. Uh, I, fell in love with, uh, Octavia Butler. I think I talked about it on the podcast from some of her other stories and, uh, I'm really liking this one so far. So it's interesting. It's kind of a vampire story. I'm so excited Um, actually. Like I love that kind of creature. It's one of my favorite, like, you know me, so you knew. I do. And I knew I was like, oh, this is perfect. And it's funny because I was trying to figure out what to do. And at first I wanted us to do this novel called, um, sense of wonder, let me pull up the author because I just blanked on it. Um, and I think you remember, I texted you and I was like, oh, this is going to be our next book. And then literally, um, I swear it was two hours later, you said, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Like I just um, had a, I don't know. Let me pull up his name real quick. But I just, I don't know. I And now that I finished it, I almost wonder if I need to give it a read, which is funny because like the last line in it says now go read this again, but it's, um, yes, it's called the sense of wonder by Matthew Salisis. Um, and he's, uh, uh, he was Korean. Um, he was adopted from Korea, uh, and he's like a professor he's written, he's gotten a couple awards and like this novel was, is just recently published in January and it's gotten a lot of like praise, but I had, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but so it's a, basically it's about this Asian American basketball star. He's the only Asian American star in the NBA, like in this story. Mm -hmm. So it's about him and that, and then it's also about another, and he's Korean, another Korean American reporter who's like a reporter for basketball. And then like this woman who produces K dramas, which are like Korean dramas and they go through like a certain kind of, there's like a, structure to them and, and everything. Oh, I've watched and, many K-drama. Okay. I then love maybe K-dramas. you should interest see, and I didn't have any experience with it before. So I think I need to read the book again because I was like, I don't, 
it just was weird. Like everything seemed super interesting, but the writing didn't seem to live up to the story, okay. which I thought was weird. Cause I'm like, I would think that he would be a better writer. So I'm like, am I just not reading this correctly? And then it, I feel like that maybe that's part of it because there's a lot of like bringing in this concept of what K dramas are. And it's a, that's a big part of this novel is the concept of K dramas and the structure. I'm interested. Like what about the writing seemed kind of weird? It just, it's, it seemed just a little trite and like, okay. Yeah. That's dialogue dramas and the dialogue felt not stilted, but just kind of like no one would talk that way. Like, and it kind of moved through things very quickly. Like there wasn't a lot of exposition on the like growth of any sort of relationships. It just like went from like scene to scene to scene to scene to scene. And there would be almost like you can tell there was stuff missing, like times passed, but it doesn't, which, so then at the end it has this part where it's like, it's the script of this K drama that this uh, woman's been producing. And then it says, now that you've read that, go back and read this again. And so part of me does think I should just give it another read because maybe it's that it needs to be read as if it is a K drama because that's what it is. And like, maybe, I don't know. Maybe. I don't so, know. It, I mean, the, the like idea of the relationships progressing though, in like a quick way, funny mm-hmm. enough to me, I think is very different than any K drama I've watched where I feel like it's almost been painstakingly slow how... Mm the relationships like develop because they're all like very kind of cheesy. They have like the same kind of humor. Um, but I still really like the ones that I've watched. If you're interested in a K drama, I'm happy to give you recommendations. Uh, Netflix has some fun ones on there. If you want to yeah, like delve I, just to like a deeper, your like understanding of the book, even I, I totally recommend you one. I do. I would love that because I really haven't spent much Time, like I like how did you get introduced to that um COVID and being home alone for like longer than two week periods and stuff I remember there is this specific k-drama on Netflix that was being released because they release weekly episodes but like every k-drama I've ever watched has been pretty much the same number of episodes it's always one season and it's always like 16 to 18 episodes um, hour long episodes. And, um, this one was being released while I was in, when I was introduced to it. Um, and it's called crash landing on you is the English translation. And it is like a ridiculous story. It's about like a, a South Korean, like fashion actress like guru like celebrity right Mm -hmm. who um goes parasailing and lands in North Korea and she's found by a North Korean officer who like takes her in and like hides her and he's gonna like try to get her back to South Korea and it is it's actually really funny like they're all very funny and cheesy and they all kind of like these tropes that are in them are pretty consistent throughout k-dramas um but that's how I got into it and I will say like they are really fun they aren't um super challenging as far as like I mean they're just cheesy like I would kind of craft it under regular like soapy it's very soapy kind of trash tv but I think it's harder sometimes for people to get into k-dramas because unlike 
other soapy TV shows, you actually have to pay attention because you can't understand what they're saying. You have to read the subtitles. Um, but there are some that are, I would say, are still really good. They're like fun and cheesy and they're just like kind of their own unique beast. And I mean, they're, and they're absolutely insanely huge over there. Like there's no speaking to how popular and how many millions and billions of views these shows get outside of the United States. Well, that makes a lot of sense then. And it does make me kind of want to go back and give it another read, but there's just so many books. Like, so I'm waiting, I'm going to go pick it up tomorrow. I ordered like pre-order the new, uh, Salman Rushdie book and that came in. And so I cannot wait to go get it because we know how I am about Salman Rushdie. It's called Victory City. And based on the synopsis, I'm super excited. He just gave an article uh, interview with the New Yorker the first time since his attack. Uh, so pretty oh, interesting. Maybe I I'll saw post, that you shared that. that. You shared that on the, you yeah, I haven't that posted it yet on Instagram. the pod, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I'll put, the, but so I'm excited about that. It's just so many books. Not enough time, Sadie. An impossible, so many books. impossible number, but it's okay. Yeah. I'm excited that it's you okay. well, went with Octavia Butler. I feel like we've been talking about her a lot mm-hmm. lately, and I think that's a perfect read. Yeah, so. I agree. I'm really excited about it. Um, what are you drinking? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I made, so look how pretty and blue it is. It is so pretty. I kind of fit with the drink. So it's, um, or the drink with the book, which yeah. is why I made it blue. So it's, uh, some hypnotic liqueur, nice. which I remember I was like, Oh my God, I'd forgotten about all about that. I used <laughs> to drink that when I was like 17 or 18. <laughs> like I remember making drinks with that. Um, so it's hypnotic and then some coconut rum and then I topped it with club soda. Oh, that sounds really good. That sounds it's like it's actually fun really drink. good. Yeah, and Kendrick tried it too and said it was good, which I was surprised because he's not a big like super fruity or cloying drink, but like the coconut rum makes, like balances it out and then the club soda like cuts through any of that. So really good and it's very pretty. Nice, very good. Yeah, um, what about you? I made it dark and stormy tonight. So I just, very simple, it's some dark rum with that's some nice, ginger that's beer. That's a nice fitting for the book too. Yeah. Well done. So dark rum, ginger beer, and lime juice. It's it's working for me. It's working out pretty good. Yeah, that that's nice. Yeah, that sounds yeah, good. I, I, I tried to go on theme. I'm not gonna lie. Like a part of me wants to get for our next episode. I want to get like a some. I don't know, like edible glitter and like dark Ooh. colored dye to make like a really like dark, deep sea kind of situation. But I don't know. It will, we'll see how uh, lazy I am next week. Yeah, that sounds really fancy. I, I kind of, I think it would be kind of cool. Like it would just, I just want to make a drink at some point that will look really good with the cover of this book. Because again, I keep saying this, it is, I love very the cover pretty. of this book. <laughs> yes, it is. Very, very pretty. I'm with you. Um, what else was I going to say? I guess that's it. All right. Well, we should get into it. So I think we can just go in order of the essays and talk about each one kind of individually. Um, and then next episode, I think we'll talk about um, the rest of the stories and the rest of the essays and then just more of kind of the whole book as a, as an entity. But I'll just say from the beginning that I really, really enjoyed this book. I think it is fantastic. I think it's a really good yeah. read. And this is, it, I mean, this is creative, like nonfiction, but also science writing that I just think is really phenomenal and really easy to read. 
and like worth it because I know you read a lot of nonfiction, but I actually, I don't read a lot of nonfiction and I, it Mm. kind of takes a lot for me to really enjoy it and to feel like I get a lot out of it other than just information. And I feel like, I feel like she did a really good job and specifically, I think she's a really good, um, science writer like every concept that she wrote about I thought like made a lot of sense so those are like my initial impressions of the book um and things that I enjoyed about it but yeah I think that's a great assessment I really enjoyed it too I like nonfiction a lot I try to always have a nonfiction book going at the same time I have a fiction book going as a way to kind of get through them um and I really liked I thought that they were a great writer I really appreciated the level of like personal like the personality that was put into not only the stories about their own life and like what they go through as you know someone who's uh, just non-binary yes oh my god non-binary I am so sorry I think I may have misgendered the writer earlier I definitely did in the last episode and I just want to apologize for that um but yes from the get-go this author it goes by they them pronouns and I'm going to try to remember. I'm usually pretty good about it, but yeah, well, we're, we're, we're doing what we can. That's, that's what you do. That's true. That's true. Just like we mispronounce names. We try and figure it out and pronounce (laughs) it and continue the correct way. That's true. That's true. Good point. Very graceful. Um, okay. So do you just, should we just get started with the first one? If you flush a goldfish, Yes. Um, (laughs) I really, I think this was a great way to start. Like, because everybody knows what a goldfish is. Everybody can have some sort of, I think most people would have, at least most people in America would have a story regarding a goldfish or had a goldfish or know. And so I think like something similar like that. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was a really great way to start off with not only the kind of the, the science writing because it's super approachable, but I thought it was a great way to start off with their story as well like so it starts with uh they're talking about they had to were asked to leave a petco when they were 13 uh because they were telling everybody at the petco that they shouldn't be buying the goldfish and we're explaining that how awful it was that they would keep a goldfish in captivity like this yeah and i thought that was such a relatable thing too and kind of this idea right off the bat of their resolve their you know um kind of single-mindedness for some things, which makes sense. I think if you're any involved in, in science and if you're a writer and just really mm-hmm. gave you a good, a good like background on their personality as a younger person. And it kind of invests you or invested me, especially in seeing how they progressed as well. Yeah. I'm always really interested too in, in like why, um, science communicators, I think is what I would say they are. Um, like why they decide to write about stuff and what piques their interest, you know? And I think that that, that story starting off when they are 12, um, years old and they already have this like interest and, you know, like empathy for sea creatures and like fish and stuff like that. Like, I just feel like that's an introduction. It's almost like it's their introduction into that world that we're Mm -hmm. being introduced to. And I thought it fit, I thought it fit really nicely. And then also just like thematically, I will say I, I'm so impressed with like the way that this whole novel was structured, you know, with, 
which stories they introduced and when. I just thought it was it was really just generally well done. But I loved the story of the goldfish. And I will tell you, I learned so much about goldfish in this story. I did too. I, I did had too. no idea. I knew that they could get very big. Um, and I remember um, we had, when we first moved into our house in Logan, um, there was a koi pond back there and there were still fish in there. And we did a very bad job um, in the winter and did not... Um, make sure that there was a hole in the ice. And so all of the fish ended up suffocating under the ice in the winter. It was really sad. But the goldfish in there were, like, pretty big, like, bigger than my fist for sure. Um, Yeah. So I knew that they could get big, but this, like, the way that they take over our environments and then, you know, like, can can survive such um, hostile environments... That was mm-hmm. like something that I I really had no idea. I didn't either. And I thought it was really interesting. And it, it almost, you know, they talk, yeah, like you said, how they'll, they'll just kind of, um, what's the, they're like this invasive species, right? Yeah. And it was so interesting to think of them that way. And then this, just this concept of, you know, how hardy they are, like the fact that they live the way they live, like basically they're breathing like dirty water and uh, they're not in a large enough environment and they're like literally drowning in their own urine. Like, yeah, it's crazy. And the, and the whole like memory thing, like just to talking about how Mm -hmm. that's not accurate and this is what they, so it just, it was interesting because I think it related in a really nice way without being in your face about how not only do we treat goldfish this way, but like that's also kind of the author's experience of how yeah. people who are non-binary or queer, anything are treated of like you're, you, you're put in this box, right? And it prevents you from going to your full potential. And it's in fact unhealthy for you. And just like, it was just, it put a lot of, there was a lot of correlation there that was just done, I feel like so elegantly. Yeah. Um, and it was just a great way to to start off the 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 selection the the collection i agree i agree i really like um and i will say like she's a great sorry they are a great writer um i love the part where they you know they talk about they just bring everything so succinctly when you know when they're talking about the fact that goldfish can live so long um even in captivity when they're in these little bowls and you know, they say, this is why I would say to the woman, a bowl makes the conditions of living impossible. But when a goldfish manages to survive it, no one thinks of their feet as extraordinary. You know, like this idea that these perfectly regular creatures and that are a part of everybody's like childhood experience at some point, you know, are treated commonly, like they're common when yeah. they're, like you said, robust and strong. Um I loved just the way that they are able to write that in. And then I like, and then, you know, the part about how they talk about feral goldfish and how, even though they're a menace and like, they're not good for the ecosystem and everything like that, that they can't help but admire them, you know, for, for like making a a place for themselves. Um, And so I love this part where they say feral goldfish are so good at living. They have become an ecological menace. Of course, it's not their fault. Goldfish would never have gotten into the river if we hadn't thought of them as disposable. 
And right. I love that because for me, you know, where she, where they make so many, um, correlations between their identities and in the way that queer people are treated. I think about yeah. that of like so many, so many people's complaints about the queer community is the fact that they're loud and that they're proud and that they, you know, are quote unquote in your face about it. But like the whole point of that is that, you know, the queer community gets loud because they're constantly shut down and treated like they're not valuable and they don't have rights. So they have to scream it from the rooftops. Like I, and I loved that kind of like, correlation of maybe if we stopped treating you know this you like you kind of ask for it if you're gonna dehumanize people and they fight back like what do you expect yeah I agree I I I liked that connection as well and and also that it's it's something that's so relatable like we said everybody has a gold and goldfish are pretty Mm -hmm. right and so I also thought it was uh in a, and they're kind of this common pet, right? And that's seen as like easy and disposable. Um, and like you really truly have no idea anything about them or what their capability is. Like it was a really nice like, and I think it also added with it being the first one in the collection of this element of you really don't know as much as you think you know about these creatures right. kind of a thing. Like who I, I wouldn't think that I didn't, I mean, I don't know a lot of specifics, but I thought I got the gist of goldfish. I certainly didn't know much of what was communicated in this piece. So it was a good reminder of like, you don't really know that much. You should read and like learn more. (laughs) I know. And I, I love too like, um, the fact that we treat them as commonplace, but then we've like bred them to be gold and pretty. And I liked how, you know, they write about how feral goldfish, revert eventually revert to their natural colors which I did not know that their natural colors are quite dull and like you know they're not bright orange like they that the way that we you know them as right and um I loved there's I can't remember which page it's on but there's a section where they talk about um in Australia that there is this you know, community of goldfish that have just taken over this entire river. And it all descends from one person who dumped their goldfish, right? Or like two people who dumped their goldfish, assuming that they need each other to procreate. I'm not sure. But like the fact that this huge, huge thousands upon thousands of goldfish came from one descendant. And then the fact that you know, you have all of these goldfish and there are still, you know, 22 plus years later, they're the original goldfish are still there and they're like the only gold ones and they've managed to survive. And they're the ones who've, you know, created all of these other goldfish. I just, I don't, I found it really interesting and I had no idea. No idea. I I didn't, I didn't either. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, great way to start it. And and I, I think that's the other thing is this collection is so well thought out as far as what uh, the order and what is discussed. Um, mm-hmm. So the next one is My Mother and the Starving Octopus. I love anything to do with octopus, which I did. We went and had a lovely dinner on Saturday with some you, great friends. And did you eat some octopus? <sighs> I did. I had octopus, ta- I had octopus <laughs> tacos and they're delicious. And I really enjoy eating octopus, but it's really... 
I'm feeling really bad about it. Like I, I was telling Kendrick when we were on our way there, I was like, yeah, they have these great octopus tacos because I've had them before. And he's like, I don't know if I can eat octopus because he, they're when so he smart. Was, got, they are. And when he went scuba diving, he, you know, saw quite a few of them and was just so impressed with them. And I'm like, I know, like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel great about it. I'm trying to reconcile it, but, um, it's okay. You, yeah. you get no judgment from me as far as that Thank goes. You. Um, so yeah, this story is, I thought was really interesting. It's a, a lot about it is about their relationship with their mother and specifically around food and bodies and feeling comfortable in your body. And, um, also it's about this octopus that, uh, managed to brood. It brooded for four and a half years over its eggs. And when an octopus broods over their eggs, they don't move, they don't eat, they starve, and they just stay there and they stay basically perfectly still unless a predator approaches and then they just kind of swat it away. Um, but this specific octopus brooded for four and a half years, which is pretty remarkable that it was able to survive that long before it died. Um, and then, yeah, it's about her, uh, them and their mother, um, and their bodies and the way that they both kind of starved themselves and, you know, deal with their body images and then how that body image changes and shifts as they grow older. Um, and it just it, an interesting way of, of like their reconciliation with like their body and, and how it factors into their lives. I thought this was a really cool story. Again, I learned a lot about octopus that I did not know. Um, but this idea of kind of, I don't know, motherhood about it and like sacrifice mm -hmm. was really interesting. Yeah. It was very touching. Like I, and I really enjoyed, um, you know, her, their mother, uh, immigrated to the United States from, uh, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought that, you know, that added another element to this story. It's like, there were these layers of it, right. With, yeah. and, and such important like mother figures, not only a mother, the octopus and also an immigrant mother. And I think, um, it was, I really enjoyed reading about that part and I love, like, there's one part where they talk about when, said, when my mother was pregnant with me, she gained 40 pounds, more than she had expected or wanted. When she went in for a checkup, all 40 extra pounds, plus me, her doctor told her to stop eating all that Chinese food. Ugh. That doctor was, that doctor was a bitch, she said. And, like, <laughs> I just, I don't know, I really liked getting this, these glimpses into not just their life, but their mother's life. Yeah. Um, because I, I think those stories are really important and are really interesting. Um, so yeah, I really, this was probably, this was probably my favorite of, of all the stories. Yeah. I, I just, I, I it love, was like some, it was like a drama, like the whole octopus right. clinging to the cliff and protecting their eggs and not eating. Like it was very dramatic and powerful. And I mean, that's how motherhood is. And right. so well, and like it literally drains them of life and color, you know, like literally of color. Which also, these are like children the, drain me of life and color. Too, so, 
<laughs> it's true. No, they just su- that's why they have all their energy is they've sucked it out of me. It's they're true. parasites. They are it's it's true. from the time they're conceived. I love them. Like they're my the best little parasites in the world, but they are. But I love this idea of of like there's this paragraph kind of near the beginning of the story where they talk about it and they start asking these hypothetical questions. So like, do female octopuses know what to expect when they're brooding? Does each mother learn about the vigil as she experiences it, wondering each day how much longer it will last? And you know, the thing about it is that after an octopus broods, they die. So like for males, it's after they have sex and they impregnate that they die. For the females, it's after they brood that they die. So as soon as the vigil is over, they're gone. And I love this idea that like maybe they're thinking about this. Hundreds of octopus mothers speckling a cliff, each starving, each alone. Or maybe the purple octopus in her youth passed by paling octopuses clinging to the edges of the canyon and recognized this would also be her fate one day. More than anything, I wanted to know why the octopus with her big and alien brain did not eat while she brooded her eggs. Surely she must have hungered. Did she have any? They even offered food, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, they are offered food by scientists that are like observing them and they just like hold perfectly still and just ignore it. Um, the inkling of the flurry of babies that might not make it if she strayed from her vigil to hunt or eat or stretch her limbs. I knew I was anthropomorphizing and yet I couldn't imagine how a creature with a consciousness would starve for four and a half years without something like hope. What I mean to say is I wanted to know if she ever regretted it. And I loved that section because it's such a interesting way of her basically them asking their mother, did you regret it? Like, do you regret what you gave up? Do you regret motherhood? Do you regret this decision? Or is this something that you wanted Mm -hmm. or that you always knew was something you were going to do? And yes, there's like, I mean, they admit that they're anthropomorphizing here, but you know, I think those are interesting questions to ask. And you know, when we know octopus, Pusses are like so, or octopi. I don't know which term it is. Yeah, um, octopus. I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But they, you know, we know that they're like extremely intelligent creatures. So they are sentient. Mm-hmm. They do like have thoughts and feelings and memories and are extremely intelligent. So I like these are interesting things to think about people or creatures outside of humans you know, having these types of thoughts or feelings about their roles, you know, in the world. I thought it, I just loved it. I liked it a lot too. And I, I, one of the things that you brought up just now, you were talking about how they discuss, you know, that they realize that they're anthropomorphizing the octopus. And I think that that's an interesting concept too, because I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I anthropomorphize every animal. Everything. I encounter. I'm always like, does my dog love me? Does my dog like actively miss me when I'm yes, gone? Does yes, my dog like do. think about me as if like I'm mm-hmm. the best thing in the world? And like I yes. think that they do, but technically I'm anthropom I'm like I'm you know putting human emotion into a dog and like but I believe well, that but, it exists. But there's that's the thing. So I think it's interesting because I think it gets a bad rap. I mean like Kendrick today sent me this link to this article and it was like uh do cats Oh, what is it? How do I got to read what it how it, got phrased um, um i 
first off, while you pull that up, I just have to say I think it is really cute that um, Kendrick sends you articles about stuff during the day. I just think that's a cute thing about your relationship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we both do. Um, Most of them are either like Star Trek related, (laughs) um, something to do with something one of the other of us like isn't interested in. TV show that we both want, like things like that. So yeah, I'll do that. But he sent me one. He'll do it too. He sent, he sent me one today. The article was titled cats bond with their owners, like children bond with their parents study finds. And he, he wrote no shit. (laughs) And I was like, I was like, yeah, who who gets paid to state the obvious like that? Because it's true. Like, (laughs) it is so true. It's so true. Like, so hmm, all of us seem to have the same exact lived experience with our pets. It's almost like, yeah, Here and, we go. and it's exactly. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I, the thing about anthropomorphizing is it's almost like, oh, you shouldn't do that. But I think it helps us like learn and like have things explained. And, you know, obviously I know that I take it too far. I do know that there's certain <laughs> things that it, it's very unlikely yeah. could be happening or feeling. But uh, I like... The, I think that they tread that line very well in these in this collection. Yeah. Because there's got to be enough where you're invested, right? And I think it comes from not necessarily that they're anthropomorphizing anything, and if they are, they call it out, but it's more just this really nice appreciation. Like, yeah, it's like empathy for these creatures. And I think that it's... You know, I think it's important to do a certain level of this because, you know, you go from their complete ends of the spectrum, right? Where you have seen no value in this and you Mm -hmm. don't consider animals feelings, you know, in any scope. And that's where I think inhumanity comes in. And I think that there are ways to be humane and, and obviously ways that we treat animals inhumanely. And like, I think that you have to make that connection. You have to recognize other creatures intelligence outside of just uh, what we think of as intelligence. Um, and I think that they do a really good job showing that kind of intelligence in different ways, um, with these creatures throughout the, throughout the book. Yeah, I think they I think that they do a good job of like you said showing the intelligence in different ways because it's a way where it's not through oh this is what they think and this is what they feel and this is how funny they are. It's more of this appreciation through them for just the way they are. Yeah. Like for that this is like, their they don't, life cycle. We, they don't Yeah, they don't need to be anthropomorphized for you to be interested or to see value in them, which I think is maybe something that can happen, right? Like it's like mm-hmm. the animals that it's easy for us to anthropomorphize, maybe they tend to have more appreciation, understanding, people care about it. Like, honestly, and I'll admit it, I, I care far more about like my dog, my cat, my horse than I do like a cuttlefish. But right. after reading about a cuttlefish, I am very interested in the cuttlefish and care about the cuttlefish. You know what I mean? Same with the gold. So I think that right. it, it it does a good job of, like I think I think it accomplishes that very well and yeah. subtly just like it like the book is the collection is very subtle yeah I think so too I and again like this I just think that this is an amazing writer like Sabrina mm-hmm. Imbler is an amazing writer they're very succinct and but I think that there are just these moments of beauty when they just capture the essence of what they're trying to say 
And um, like I, th- I love this part where um, they're talking about how the mother octopus survives on the stored energy of her body. She will never again see another place. This is her last view, enlivened only by the freer creatures that happen to pass through the icy waters. In the deep sea, these visitors are alien, fish with transparent faces and golden eyes, ghost sharks, tongue red worms. Like, I just, this idea of, like, a final resting place when you're alive, you know, is just... Yeah. But then the way that they compare that in so many ways to motherhood, but then, like, the conflict between mother and child, and especially when the mother and child and the child is biologically female, you know, when they're born and like the conflicts that come from that of like image and like projecting, Mm -hmm. you know, your concept of image on your children. Like I thought I was really moved by that, um, conversation. And they talk about just how their body is different than their moms and how their body was never going to be like their moms and, and the feeling being taken into their mom's closet. And the mom is like dressing them in clothes that will never fit and they never have fit. And they just continually have to go through this like ritual of, of like trying to fit into each other in a way that will never work. And I, totally totally empathized with that yeah I I I think so too I think that that, that's one of the things like I was kind of taking a note of the themes in the book and one of the things that I wrote down was empathy Mm -hmm. and and I think it was almost like also the author is working on empathy for themselves and their family and their situation too like this seemed yeah. very therapeutic very therapeutic to me and i and i think as we get farther on in the collection that becomes the more um directly stated um but it was such a nice just like these stories are such great discoveries both of the creature that they're talking about and themselves and i think it was a great way to discover like as a reader like it was a very exploratory collection and yeah really great. Like I was, I was so excited about this. This was a great one. Thank you. Um, I loved, I just want to end with the story. Like I love this, like you said, empathy of, you know, throughout the story, they kind of go through these conflicts that they've had with their body of like never feeling good enough, never feeling thin enough, never feeling like they quite worked. And then in a lot of ways, their mother kind of agrees and like fits into that and takes her to see a weight loss specialist. And even though, you know, they're like 130 pounds. Like there's no weight to lose. Right. But like yeah. they're that idea is kind of constantly brought up. And and this idea of hunger with like the octopus and then the way that women starve starve themselves, you know, um, I thought was really interesting. And I loved this last part where their mom takes them to to where she went to school and takes her to this restaurant that she went to when she was young. And they order, you know, all of this junk food that they've never really been like allowed to eat. Exposed to, yeah. Yeah, at home. And they offer it to their mom, but they say no. And I licked my spoon and watched the streamers of light blinking on the bridge back home. I closed my eyes and imagined myself as my mother. My stomach, my mother's stomach. 
back when she was young and tasted whatever she desired back when she feasted. And this idea, this concept of like youth versus, you know, adulthood and motherhood and the, the things that are taken from you and like the way that you can't feast on like life or whatever you want Mm -hmm. after you reach a certain point in life. And I just, I thought it was lovely. I thought that was a lovely story. Yeah. And it was great. Like start to finish the story itself was structured really well too. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. All right. The Um, next one. Sorry. The sturgeon. No, I was just going to say, let's move on to the next one. My grandmother and the sturgeon. Um, This one was so interesting in its Mm -hmm. imagery. Um, So this one has a lot to do with um, basically like environmental warfare from humans and the way that it like affects creatures that have survived millennia. Um, So the sturgeon is one of like the ancient species um, that survived basically the like extinction of dinosaurs and has just survived for millions of years, millions and millions of years. And it's just a robust, hardy beast, um, that has changed a lot. So it used to be a lot bigger and then the world changed and, um, resources have been fewer. And so they just don't grow as big. And now they're, um, an endangered species from China. And I loved the connections, uh, between the story or these creatures, the sturgeons, with their grandmother as they were commuting on on the river um, from like between Japan and Shanghai, I think is what it was of the two places. You're correct. It's when uh, Japan was occupying China and talks. Yeah, I, I agree. This one, this was one of the harder, like this was sad. So sad, very sad, but like so good. I mean, so one of the things that it talks about is how um, sturgeon, kind of like salmon, they are unique in that they, to breed, you know, they swim upstream like like other fish do um, to breed. But unfortunately, because of our environmental intervention um, and dams, we've basically com- like blocked off all of their breeding grounds and... Um, they're just not able to successfully breed. There's only like one or two places that they can still swim upstream to breed that hasn't been blocked off by a dam. Um, And they are going extinct. And they are also being like poisoned and contaminated and they are becoming deformed and like aren't themselves anymore. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, this, this ancient creature that we're like destroying... Within like 20 years, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it's, it's yeah. not that long of time that we've made these drastic changes to the species um, that's been able to survive every major world catastrophe um, except mm-hmm. for humanity. So yes, I mean, they describe it perfectly. These giant fish survived the asteroid and the ice age and so much more only to be wiped out by cosmically puny obstacles, our dams, our boats, our chemicals, and our taste for caviar. Yeah, it it made me, I've not been a huge caviar fan anyway, like where yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get it a lot. I've, I've enjoyed it when I've had it, but I'm like, oh, I don't, 
I don't want to have octopus anymore and I don't want to have caviar anymore. (laughs) I can see how people get to the point of like being vegetarians. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I really, I really liked, and the whole thing was sad, not just that part of it and what we're doing environmentally, but just her grand, their grandmother's story and just the, uh, the continuation and almost inevitability of humanity destroying, destroying, like just being destroyers, you know, and how awful we make life for ourselves and other creatures and how it seems like it's just this continuation. And now it's at the point where it's destroying like something that's like we said, survived so many Mil- other, like, like like literally millennia. an incompre- incomprehensible amount of time. Um, yeah. They bring up like that classic. And I remember learning about this when I was in college. I think I took like a geology course or something where they talk about when you look at the timeline of Earth and you think mm-hmm. about a million years, we occupy the first minute of 24 hours. Like if you look at it like it was like as if it was a clock. Um, and that's us in comparison to these sturgeons who we are now killing. Like it's just crazy. But I, I loved like the imagery. I think there was just so much imagery of, of contamination in so many different ways. So when they're talking about their grandmother's story, um, while they are going on these houseboats, um, a month long trip turning into a six month long trip and just like kind of the horrors that they see. Um, I love this description, but it, I mean, it is graphic. Um, Gradually, like twilight, the river blushed pink. Soon enough, the bodies came, rarely intact, but always recognizably human. First an arm or leg, later a torso, at one point unforgettably a head. They all wore the clothing of farmers and country people. The dead became routine, grisly apples bobbing downstream. Um, And this is obviously remarking on the, like, Japanese invasion in China and just the destruction and murder and genocide of a lot of communities in China. And um, it's horrific. And the the comparison of this, like, act of violence in this war um, on humans and then comparing it to really a comparable act of violence against the environment with other things that we're doing. Um, I think it was connected really well, but like you said, it was, this was one of the more depressing yeah, stories, I think. I mean, I shouldn't say story. It's one of the more depressing essays. It just reads so much like a, they do like yeah, a story. They do. I keep, that's how I think, think of the writing, which I, I think it's fine. Okay. I mean, Certainly not an insult. Like that. it's it's good, and we all know it's true and accurate yeah. writing. So, I agree. Um, so then the next one is uh, the uh, sperm whale. How to draw a sperm whale? This one was heartbreaking too. I know, like, and this made me want to go to the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts, which is apparently right go. next to me. Although it's probably just going to make me sad. But uh, yeah, I I mean, so it starts off, you know, talking about in ninety eight. Uh, a blue whale, 66 foot blue whale, and just how it basically was destroyed by this ship and then dragged. And, mm-hmm. you know, just talking about how many of these blue whales specifically are, are being killed. And, but then it also, it doesn't, I mean, it really just, it does such a great job of it really sucks you in, it's heartbreaking, but then it just really gets into the nitty gritty of 
the enormity of these whales and just how like majestic mm-hmm. they are by being just very specific and scientific about them. Like they're just amazing creatures. And it just, you just get that by reading this. Like there's no, it's not so not heavy handed. It's so subtle, like we've already said. And then they talk about, you know, their own heartbreak when it comes to r- relationships and, yeah. And again, almost giving this uh, a lot of what it talks about with the blue whale is the necropsy. Mm-hmm. And like they, I feel like these essays, a lot of them are kind of their own dissection of their life, particularly when it comes to queer love and their experiences. And it's just so well done. Like it, it it's just this really nice postmortem on, yeah. on their life. And then... Uh, in this particular story where it actually goes into kind of these postmortems, it's, it, it just fits very well. Like I agree. And, and then I also think it's an interesting play on, um, you know, there's a critique here about scientists and, um, their dissection in a way of, of like these creatures that they study, while also dissecting this like relationship, failed relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, and this first foray into queer love that they have really had and um, their own kind of insecurities about it. I think it's really interesting, like seeing them identify their own insecurities about a relationship and like how it failed. But then also at the same time, kind of, I think critique um, the way that, scientists kind of deal with these animals like there's this one quote I think I highlighted it I have to find it um but it's a it's talks about the one that died the one whale that died because they had tagged it and then the whale unfortunately died because of um an infection that it got because of the tag which was unusual Um, and then they ended up having to, you know, they took the animal and then they, they dissected it again. And I just thought that was interesting of kind of like the way that scientists in a way they give us knowledge, but why do we have to like harm the thing that we're studying? You know, like, is the knowledge worth it at that point? Like, why do we have to study how we're killing it? Because then we have to kill it to start to figure out how we're killing it. Like, it's just sad. They bring that up again in the jellyfish yeah, yeah. story that I think we'll get to in the next part. But yeah, yeah, that's also a good theme, which is nice in it. And it comes off. I mean, it's a very fair because they themselves are, you know, in the science field. And so it does. Um, mm-hmm. They don't uh, excuse themselves either. Like it's a yeah, it's a good it's a good critique. Yeah. This So the part I was talking about is on page 83 and it's talking about Nigel and how um, he was found dead in April and then they towed him to a nearby village for a necropsy and the attending pathologist found that Nigel had died when fungi entered his bloodstream through the punctures of the tag, warming it deep into his lungs and killing him. Um, and then they say there is a way the science scientists realized to study something to death But scientists have to study whale death to understand how and why we cause it, as we almost always do. So 
Yeah. I mean, the idea of having to cause something in order to study it. And um, I don't know. It's kind of like what Kendrick texted you. Like, no shit. Like, why did we have to study this like experience that we already know about? You know, yeah. or like, why it's, did we have it's to an test interesting, this? It's interesting to be like, what kind of proof do we need? Right. Like, and this idea that there's like a something about you know, the people or, or people that know things so well that it ends up harming it. Like this idea that, um, I love this part too. The corpse of a whale offers a blueprint of its internal self, the arrangement of its organs and vessels and heart, but a dead whale offered naturalists little insight into how the whale may have lived. That knowledge was reserved for the people who hunted them. So like, I like this idea that the the biggest threat is what knows them the best. And like, I don't know, it's just sad. It's just kind of sad, but it's interesting. It's an interesting like concept to think about. And I, I think about that, you know, this is based a lot around a museum and a museum that has a lot of like specimens and examples, that, which are, I think, objectively great. Like, this is great that humans are learning about these, and maybe you could go to a museum like this and have more empathy and more sympathy for whales in general. But, like, what had to happen for all these specimens to get there? Or, like, I think about that even with zoos and stuff. Like, zoos are great in the sense that more people are able to see, like, the incredible kind of life that lives on this planet. But at what cost? You know, did... Like, why are we here at this point? Yeah. I thought that was an interesting kind of concept. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think it was very thought-provoking. Um, and I loved, too, like, like you said, these necropsies on this relationship and um, them kind of coming to grips with what it means to be queer and how does their queerness exist outside of a relationship and can they be queer and alone? And, um, mm -hmm. I loved the kind of methodical scientific way that they tried to analyze that relationship kind of objectively. Yeah, I agree. This one was great. Hard to read, but really great. All right. And um, then the last one for yeah. tonight's episode pure is life. pure life. Which this one is so cool. So this one is about um, hydrothermic uh, vents. Yes, this one's really sea. cool. This I learned a lot in this one. It's fascinating. Did you look up a photo of these Yeti crabs that they oh, describe? Yeah. I looked up so many photos while reading this collection and like went down total rabbit holes and told like my kids <laughs> and Kendrick about like the things I learned. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it was super interesting. But yeah, continue. Um, so I loved this. So a lot of this is talking about how scientists for so long were kind of confused at how there could be, um, in the cold depths of the, of the ocean, these spots where there was just burgeoning life and just incredible, um, communities basically of creatures underneath there. And the kind of concept of what is and what is not an inhospitable or is an hospitable environment and like a safe space 
um, I thought was a really interesting concept. Um, I like this part at the beginning, the way that they start talking about this kind of space or environment is, um, though the Yeti crab's environment seems inhospitable to us, it is nothing to be pitied. The pressure does not crush the crab and the darkness does not oppress it. So this idea that, you know, people can I have... highlighted that section. You did? I did too. Yeah. I love I, thought, that. I love that. I did too. I thought it, I thought it was just really nice. It, it is exactly suited to the life it leads, however strange or repulsive we might find it. What mm-hmm. use is the sun to an eyeless crab? It already has everything it needs. Like it was such a nice perspective shift um, mm-hmm. uh, essay story. Well, like, and I love it too because um, they, you know, they talk about in this section queer communities and queer hubs and um, where queer people find each other and where they find freedom and where they find the opportunity to express themselves. And this concept that our perception of what is a safe space Mm -hmm. is only based in like our specific environment. So, and I love, I loved this because I think that there's so much critique and, you know, like clearly homophobic and, um, awful, you know, critique of queer spaces of being, of these queer spaces being dangerous or queer spaces being, um, negative for kids to be around or, you know, all this horrible, horrible rhetoric that goes around. And I love just this idea that, you know, like your perception of a space is based on like your biases and your, what, like only what you think but that doesn't mean it's an inhospitable space. It just means it's maybe not for you. And the fact like that certain spaces, it's okay if it's not for you. I just, I loved the way, the the connection that they made here. Mm-hmm. I think so too. And, and the concept of when those spaces, like what, how hard it is when those spaces disappear, oh, you know, when those mm-hmm. gay bars and those clubs like don't, like where you lose them and just how important it is for beings to have community and have space that has what they need, even if it's like you said, like not the space for someone else and just how important these things are and also how they may not look to us. Like it's, yeah, it it just really is a nice perspective shifting. I mean, I didn't need this perspective shift. I already felt this way, but I think it's a nice, uh, it just brings it into perspective. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, really well. Like it's so great how they connected these different creatures with us as human beings and our, it, I really think it helped bridge some big gaps because while it may be easy for us to connect with animals, like, you know, that are more domesticated and we can anthropomorphize mm-hmm. easier as we've already talked about, it's like, they do a great job of making one feel a connection with a crab that lives next right. to th- thermal vents and has no eye, like, you know what I mean? They really help bridge a really big gap and it's easy and sometimes trite to say, oh, we're all living beings. And like, but they really bring that message well, home do. in a way that you feel it. It's not just something that you dismiss. The the feeling of despair and sadness that I got when they talk about the Rose Garden by the Galapagos um, islands, which is a vent that was flourishing. And then, you know, they came and studied it and then they left. And then like 10 years later or something, they came back and it was completely gone. And it was because Mm -hmm. there was a volcanic eruption. So this is how scientists, which is like, this is such a modern 
finding and a modern concept in reality. The, the idea of basically this whole new form of life, which is what they talk about. They always, you know, the fact that scientists and humans always thought that life was predicated on photosynthesis and the sun, but then they find like evidence that actually life and energy, like these, there are bacteria in the sea that have figured out another way to create energy and to survive. Um, I, I loved, but I loved like, oh my gosh, when they return to the Rose Garden and they find that it's all gone and it's so sad, but then they come back again 10 years later and all of a sudden like there's like a whole new community and then they renamed that community Rosebud and just like this fact, like this idea of, of like you can never actually shut anything down forever and like these creatures find a way. And then I also- the perseverance. I love the, the comparison of- you know, they talk about these queer spaces being like bars and dance clubs and the energy that they feel from being in those spaces with their community. Um, and then the way that they compare that to the way that the crabs dance, you know, like I love this part where the scientists realize that that when the crabs danced, they were farming the bacteria clinging to their bristles. The crabs were farming their own food. Um, at the bottom of the seafloor, miles from the sun. Wouldn't dancing all day and all night make any creature, crustacean or not, tired? But according to researchers, dancing doesn't exhaust the crabs. After all, they wouldn't dance unless it gave them energy. And I love this idea of like these energetic spaces actually being a place for uh, creatures or people, human beings, to thrive and to, to gain energy from. You know, I just, I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, I did. I did too. I, even though a lot of these topics, including in this essay, aren't necessarily um, positive or leave you with like, like they're challenging, right? But I think yeah. that there's still a nice element of hope in not only the the scientific writing, but in their own life, like just this hope through perseverance. You know that like life will find a way. This adaptability. Um, which mm -hmm. I think it's brought up in, in other future, uh, stories in the collection as well. But that, and that's so the thing too, like the, I, I think they did such a great job of weaving the same, like kind of having this repetitiveness of themes, but not in a way where it was uh, annoying. It just, it really solidified everything. I agree. And I mean, I think that they don't shy away from the fact that that's kind of the point is the point is analyzing how both human beings, uh, specifically, you know, the writer, Sabrina Imbler, like survived as a queer person mm -hmm. and like survived discovering their identity and their their world and found finding their community and their place and their habitat, you know, in yeah. a lot of ways. I think like thinking about how we're not alone as creatures in having to do that and that it can be okay. It can be okay. Like, and I, I love that we're ending on this. This is like one of the reasons I wanted to end our first episode on this story is because of how hopeful this part sounds. And I mean, and it's not because like sad things are not mentioned. Like they talk about the 2016 election. They talk about the shooting at the Pulse club in Florida and you yeah. know, all of the, the ways that so many people are trying to destroy these habitats and these communities, the like place safe spaces the that the gay community has created for themselves. Um, but the way that you just can't stop it, like the, 
this isn't something that can actually be stopped and it can't be fully destroyed. And I love the last sentence um, or paragraph really where they talk about the Rosebud site. And the Rosebud site scientists wrote, highlighted the dynamic nature of deep sea sites, oases here where so few things are certain inevitably blink on and off. But life always finds a place to begin anew and communities in need will always find one another and invent new ways to glitter together in the dark. I just think this book is fantastic. Yeah, it really is. It's really great. This is a great pick. I'm excited to talk about the the second like half that we've split it up into. So hopefully if you haven't read it, we have inspired you to go get it and read it because it's great. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's, I think it's an easy book to read. Oh my gosh. It's an, but like, it's an easy book to read. Yeah. So definitely go out and get it. Um, was really excited about this one. Uh, and all the rabbit holes it sent me down. So I love when that happens. (laughs) Me too. Um, and then just a reminder, our next book that we will be discussing is Octavia Butler's, uh, fledgling. So also grab a copy of that from your local bookstore or bookshop.org. Um, and that one should be a fun much, much oh, different I'm so I am so now, excited to pick it up. I can't tell you I how excited I am. I knew you'd love that one. Um, so yeah, I guess that's it. We'll talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye.